0: On your bookmarks that have mapped out our quest for history, we're deviating at the moment. We're not going to follow the bookmark at this point until we get back to the New Testament. Then we're back on track. But I thought I'd abbreviate this section of the Old Testament because it's all about the prophets. And um, I can summarize, I think, their message in two messages. Okay, are we there? Ezekiel 37? Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceeding great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord, whom, uh, when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And, here's this is key, I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it, declares the Lord. Jump to verse 24. God continues speaking. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I give to my servant Jacob, when your father, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. Verse 26. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary, temple, temple, In their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. Then the nations will know. That I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel. When my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Let us pray. Father I. Ask for your breath to come and fill my lungs, that I may speak according to your spirit. And Lord, that you would be the air that your church here breathes tonight. Um, Give us life by your spirit, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So how does dead, fallen humanity find his place in God's story? How does dead, fallen humanity be restored to God? And furthermore, how does that dead, fallen man, who isn't restored to God, go and restore the nations to God? You see what I'm saying? This is a high task that God has given to Israel. Go and restore the nations to me. But Israel's fallen quite horribly. see, the fall of man happened twice. (laughs) It happened with Adam when he rebelled in the Garden of Eden. And when God called Israel, he he was in a sense starting over, saying, Israel, you're my new Adam, and I'm giving you a promised land. This is your new Eden, and you're going to erect my temple there, and I'm going to dwell with you, and you're going to invite the nations here, and they're all going to be restored to me like you are to me. But Israel did not submit to God's authority. They decided, we'll write our own story. We'll do what we think is best. Our route, our option. And they did that. It's so much so that last time, what was this, like over a month ago by now, before I got married? Last time we were in history, um, it was 2 Kings 17, and what we saw was Israel was exiled, kicked out of the promised land, just like Adam was kicked out of Eden. Because they borrowed from the corrupt nations, they borrowed their culture, From the the people they were supposed to restore to God. So they write their own story. They start to borrow from other people. And God was displeased because they had rejected his rulership. They rejected the mission God gave them to do. So he exiled them, just like Adam. So the fall happened, in a sense, two times. And to graphically illustrate Israel's fall, Ezekiel takes up chapter 37 And he writes about a graveyard heaped up with dry, dead bones. Just this massive, think of like a battlefield with with hundreds and thousands slain. And the flesh, they've just been there forever. And the flesh is just like rotted off of them. There's just bones. Dry because there's absolutely no life left to them at all. Just a graveyard. And that's what Ezekiel sees. And that's what Ezekiel is trying to say. Is that this is the condition of Israel. Right now, because at this point in our story, Israel has been cut off the land; they've been cast out; they've, their mission has been cut off. You know what this means? The promises God made to David—if you could jog your memory back to Second Samuel seven—God promised David three key things. David, you're gonna one of your children, a Davidic king, is going to rule over Israel forever. Your kingdom will last forever. And I will dwell in my temple with the people forever. What what do you see in the scene with all the dead bones being Israel? You don't see a king. You don't see a kingdom. You don't see God's temple. They're all done. So in short, Israel is dead. That's what we come to. Ezekiel gives us Israel's graveyard. And we look at it and say, my... This looks bad, so bad that God asks Ezekiel there in verse 3, um, Son of man, can these bones live? <laughs> and Ezekiel answers, Oh Lord, you know. Or, in short, what be- Ezekiel's basically saying is, It looks so hopeless that only you can answer this question because there's no way they're living. <laughs> they- they're done, over, dead. And so Israel's mission that God called them out of the cursed world and blessed them and said, now go and restore all the nations to me. That mission is done. It's been cut off. And that is the danger when you and I choose to live by our story. We decide that we're writing the pathway to our life. We're writing it out. We're deciding this is what I'm going to be, this is what I'm going to do, and I don't care what anyone says or whether I should or not. I'm just going to do my own thing. I just saw the movie Brave with Brittany, and, you know, classic Disney movie, and it was really good, but I had to stop and think. The message of this movie is literally write your own story. Because the main character is unhappy with her plot in life And decided, I get to do what I want And kind of the whole resolution of the story is That everybody got to do what they want It's their life, they make the rules And that's quite contrary that The reason that appeals to humanity And the reason why we sometimes only think twice about that movie Like what that says Is because that is the fall of man I write my own story, I live my own life That is the fall And we're all fallen So that appeals to us And when we write our own story, we, like Israel, end up in a graveyard. That's where the story ends. Solomon knew this. Proverbs 16, verse 14. Actually, Proverbs 14, verse 12. Solomon says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that way is death. It's Ezekiel 37, graveyard. There's a way that seems right to a man. Let's put that in our vernacular. There is a story that seems right to you. But the end of that story is heap of dried bones. Death. So that's the warning. Live not by your own story. God has a grand story of resurrection power through his spirit that he wants to call you into and have you participate in. He wants you to find your place in that story. To surrender and say, okay, this is God. I'm going to go by faith with your story. Where does God's story end? end, not in a graveyard, but in life. When Moses was called to lead Israel on this adventure, to restore the nations to God, Moses kind of was like hesitant like you and I would be, when God's calling you out of what you've known and leading you into his mission, you'd be like, whoa, wait, a couple things I need to know before I go off on this. Are you trustworthy? Is the story that you're writing for me going to lead to something good? Or is it just going to wreck my life? Uh, essentially what Moses asked me, he said, who should I tell the people sent me to do this crazy mission? And God told Moses, it's okay because my name's Yahweh. Yahweh means, I will be who I am. That's what he tells Moses. Tell the people, I will be who I am. What that means is that God will be tomorrow who he is today. That the God who's created a good creation is going to keep creating good in the future. That as God saved you from your sin, he's not going to lead you into something worse. It's going to be progressively brighter. As, as Proverbs, 14, uh, Proverbs 4, I think it's verse 12, something in there says that the path of the righteous gets brighter and brighter and brighter leading to the perfect day. That means improvement, improvement, progress, progress. There's no regress in God's story. The only regression that happens is the graveyard when man decides to say, my story, not yours. So that's what we learn here, is that our story results in a heap of bones over. So I would encourage us, if you guys have been struggling with that whole, like, I'm going to call my own shots. I'm going to be my own king to lay it down before you find that the wages of sin is death. And put your faith in the God who gives life to the dead. says in Romans 4. He gives life to the dead. That's his story. God's story is one that brings restoration through the resurrection power of his spirit coming inside of us. Okay, we have dead bones, but they come to life when the breath, or I'll show you in a minute, it's actually the spirit, same word, comes and resurrects these dead bones. That's God's story. It brings resurrection through the resurrecting power of God's spirit. So, that's what we see happens next. God's story takes control. Why? Because the prophets... Um, Particularly Jeremiah 31, verse 13. Jeremiah says, God says to Jeremiah, Look, you're going to go into exile. It's going to be the death of your nation, the death of your mission, the death of all, the apparent death of all the promises I have for you. But when you're in exile, when you're in this dead graveyard, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with your whole heart. And essentially what he says is, he goes on, I think it's like in the next verse or two. He says, I will restore you. When you decide, it's time to search for God with our whole hearts. It's time that we give up our story and go after his story and live by faith under that story. And then God brings life through his spirit. And that's what happens is Israel begins to call upon God. So God tells Ezekiel to prophesy to the bones and to the breath. And what happens that we read was, <laughs> can you imagine being Ezekiel? I mean, it's a vision, of course, but still, it's like freaky. It's like a really bad dream. You start to see all these dead bones. Get up. they start moving on their own and they start assembling themselves the knee bone to the hip bone to the, I don't know how that song goes but you know that song? yeah and then the jaw bone, they all start connecting themselves together and then Ezekiel begins to see sinews and flesh and muscle and tissue and skin and tendons and ligaments and all these things start to come together And he sees this army of people, bones, now people, but they're just like, I guess they're um, they're dead. So they're just like, you know, they're standing there. And then God says, call the breath, the breath, call it, and the breath will come into them and they will become living beings. Does this remind you of something that started our story God formed Adam in Genesis 2 and Adam became a living being when God breathed into him and he became living and so the breath of God comes and it fills these, this army and they become living people if you will. they're resurrected from death to life so what does this mean this chapter tells you and I that yes Israel's in exile they're done It seems, But God decides to send his breath and resurrect them to their mission. Okay, you guys have been exiled, but I am going to show the world that my story is one of restoration. And even though you yourselves are exiled, I'm going to bring you back in. I'm going to resurrect you to life, and I'm going to give that mission back to you and send you off. Everything is going to be a-okay. I will uphold my promises to you. You're going to have that eternal king, that eternal kingdom, that eternal temple where I will dwell with you forever. It's going to happen. So I'm going to call my breath to come into you and give you life. Check this out. In verse 24, the whole last paragraph of this chapter tells us what's going to happen as a result of Israel's restoration to her mission. So in verse 24, we see that David will rule. Forever, My servant David shall be king over them and they shall have one shepherd and they shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. And then if you go down to the bottom of verse 25, it says they and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince. How long? Forever. So. The promise to David that he's going to have a son to reign forever. God's saying, I'm going to restore you even though you've fallen Israel. I'm going to restore you and you're going to have that king that reigns forever. You'll see when we get to the New Testament that that's Jesus. The only, think about it honestly, the only king that can live forever. Okay. And then verse 25, spoiler, (laughs) verse 25. Then we see that the kingdom will be forever too. Verse 25 says they shall dwell in the land. So the kingdom is going to be in the land. The land is important for a kingdom. Um, they will be in the land that I give to my servant Jacob where their fathers lived. And they shall, their children shall dwell there how long? Forever. So the kingdom will be restored. They're going to have this king forever. They're going to have their land forever. And third, what's going to be restored is the temple. In verse 26. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an Everlasting covenant. You guys getting the eternal value here of what's happening? Everything's going forever um, with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. (laughs) Verse 27 My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's Language of restoration. That's Edenic language. That's what Adam and humanity that was created for. That's what they had in Eden. God was their God and they were his people. And heaven touched earth because the two dwelt together in harmony. A covenant of peace. Shalom would be the Hebrew word. And and that word means an integrated relational wholeness with God. Not just like a pacifist type of thing. That's Edenic language. Now this temple or this sanctuary he's talking about, I would propose is his temple that's going to come dwell with Israel forever. Go to chapter 47, because what happens here, I think that this is describing the temple he's promising. Um, Ezekiel 40 through 48, that's the last, if if you guys read Ezekiel, you'll notice the last eight chapters of the book is the most dull reading ever. Eight chapters of what the temple is going to look like. Now this temple Ezekiel is talking about is a future temple. And I think that it's this temple that God's promising and you're going to see that this temple speaks of restoration of an Edenic sort. So 47 verse um, 7. Actually, you guys may have heard this passage before. Um, There's a river. This is what's going on. Ezekiel sees a temple. There's a river flowing out of it. Like Jesus said, Rivers of living water shall flow. And Ezekiel goes into the water and it's up to his ankles, and then he goes down further and it's up to his knees. He goes down further, it's up to his waist, further shoulders, and soon he's like, he's totally in. The point is that this river is ever expanding as it leaves this future end time temple. It's just growing and it's going out to the ends of the earth. Remember how Eden was set up? It was a mountain, and it said that four rivers came off the sides and went out to water the earth. So we have here a temple, which Eden was. Remember, it was a temple on top of Mount Zion, and there's this river going out to water the ends of the earth. And this is what it says in verse 7. So Ezekiel says, As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees, like Eden, on one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the Araba that's a desert and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water becomes fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. See, life is coming out of this river. For this water goes there, and the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live wherever the river goes. Verse 12. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail. But they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary, God's presence. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. That sounds familiar? It's because John rips off that whole passage in Revelation to describe the new heaven and new earth. So we're dealing with a future temple not yet built that will be forever. Forever. Now, question. Can a temple built with hands last forever? Absolutely not. That's what Stephen argued with the Pharisees in Acts 7. He said, This temple is not the end-time temple that God's going to dwell in because it was made with hands, not going to live forever. And they got really mad at him and said, How dare you, blasting the temple? And they stoned him. Stephen's point was, The, the temple of God has been relocated. Where? I'm getting ahead of myself, so... Seat belts, get ready for that later. So, and then the fourth restoration. So, the king, the kingdom, the temple, forever restored. And here's the crucial part. Israel's restored to her mission when God resurrects her. This is in verse 28. Um, then, then, meaning once the temple is established, this, this indwelling presence of God, once that is established in the midst of Israel, then the nations... That's been the whole point the whole time, right? Israel's supposed to go bless the nations. The nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. So, once the sanctuary, God's dwelling presence with man, is in place in Israel, mission will be resumed. The nations will be reached out to and be coming to Israel for the restoration with God. Okay now what what I think I hope by now what you guys are seeing is Ezekiel 37 what it means is clear it's basically saying the exile Israel's experiencing their death is not forever God's gonna restore them back to their mission and give them their eternal king eternal kingdom eternal temple so the promises will be fulfilled and they will continue to to see or they will this time when they're restored actually restore the nations to god that's what ezekiel 37 is saying it's a chapter of hope to exiles who have lost hope you're dead but you're gonna live but here is the more controversial question <laughs> when does this happen And you might be thinking, I've never heard a thing about this. I don't know when this will happen. Well, some of you have, and I'm feeling like I'm about to walk on eggshells, so I'm warning you, I'm going to ignite a controversy, but I hope at the same time that you'll see that you can agree with me and I can agree with you. Okay? What is this controversy? It's when Ezekiel 37 happens, or when Israel is restored to her mission. Now, most of you... I would assume, especially even in Calvary Chapel, will have heard that this restoration happened already on May 14th, 1948. Very recently. What happened on May 14th, 1948? Anybody know? Israel became a nation. Um, the present day Israel that's there right now. The, the, the white flag with the blue, two blue stripes and the Star of David. That nation. Um, I don't this is where we're going to make reconciliation Because some of you have been probably been raised on that i don't deny that this text possibly might have something to do with that establishing the nation all right that's possible but i just don't I, what i challenge is that that's not the primary meaning of this text okay ezekiel didn't sit down and think golly Lord's giving me oh restoration oh I see it 1948 oh this is really good they're gonna have their own flag and kind of have their own government I mean they're gonna have a lot of war with the Arabs but eh, it looks good enough I don't think that's what was in mind when God gave this message to Ezekiel I think it was something as as it, God had to do that There's no doubt that God was in that whole 1948 thing but I'm proposing that God accomplished this in a much bigger event. An event that actually means something to you. An event that you're still experiencing this second as you sit here. An event that means if it didn't happen, you wouldn't be in this chair you're sitting in. We wouldn't even know each other, probably. We'd have our own little thing going on. What event was this? I'm proposing that the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit of God descended upon the disciples there in the room, and the church was birthed, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and started the church and went out to the nations, I'm proposing that that moment was the start of fulfilling Israel's resurrection and restoration. Now, I've got six reasons. Um, I'm just going to kind of bullet through these and just simply by doing this I'm going to connect between Acts 2 and Ezekiel 47 common phrases and concepts between those two to show that I think Luke had this passage in mind when he wrote the Pentecost moment and so that they're linked so real quick six six connections why this is referring to Pentecost Um, number one the mention of breath all over in Ezekiel 37 breath is the word Hebrew word, ruach. And I've told this to you before. Ruach simply means breath, wind, or spirit. I don't know what you do for spirit. Spirit's just like... Spirit. (laughs) Now, the word... Ruach is used in verse 14 it, it's, it's a word for breath And in 14 where it says I will put my spirit within you So I think 14 is the key It's unlocking, it's interpreting the whole thing for us We know the bones are Israel We know it's representing their exile But the breath that finally brought them to life Is the spirit of God And this isn't the first time we've seen this This is actually the fourth significant moment That God's breath, wind or spirit Has done something epic in our story You guys remember the first? The first was Genesis 1-2. You had a planet filled with water and darkness. In other words, there was a lot of death. There was nothing living on the planet. And it says that God's spirit, same word, Ruach, God's spirit hovered over the waters, and then light, life, started to happen, and creation was birthed. Go to the flood, second instance, and the waters once again, It's a reversal creation. The waters flooded the world. There's death everywhere. And then when it was time for the waters to recede, what does Genesis 8-1 say? God sent a wind, a ruach, so it could be his spirit, over the waters, and they receded, revealing a new creation. The third time ruach is used is in Exodus 14. When Israel comes up to the Red Sea, and they're trapped, and Egypt's coming to kill them, and God, it says, He sends an east wind, Ruach, His Spirit, over the waters, and they part. Israel is rebirthed as they go through a new beginning, a new creation. And then this is the fourth time. God's Ruach, His Spirit comes and fills these bones with life, and Israel's is restored. Now here's the connection because there's yet one more important moment where God's wind acts. It's in Acts chapter 2. In Acts 2 verse 2, it says this. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And that word wind in the New Testament is the same word for spirit. So God's spirit comes and it says there in Acts 2 4. It comes, fills the house, and they were all filled with wind. No, they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. So Luke connects the whole ruach theme, God's wind, breath, and spirit, together. That, the, that Israel was restored there in the upper room of Pentecost when the church was birthed. Further, number two, the filling of the spirit. This is kind of supplementary. Um, verse 14 of our chapter, Ezekiel 37:14, God says, I will put my spirit within you. Acts 2, verse 4 confirms that at that moment the spirit was within those Israelites. Number three. The number 12. We see here in verse 11. Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Why the whole house? Because remember, when Solomon died, Israel was split into two kingdoms. And the north kingdom was wiped off the map by the Assyrians. And they were scattered all over the world. And they entered bread and they're just all over. The south kingdom was taken by the Babylonians. And they're the ones in exile. Now by whole house of Israel. It means that the scattered ones and the exiled ones are going to come together. Look at verse 22. It says. It says, I will make them one nation In the land, on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be over them all, and they shall no longer be two nations, and no longer divided into two two kingdoms. They're going to be restored together, one nation. So, this is where the number 12 comes in. There's 12 tribes of Israel. Why did Jesus choose 12 disciples? That's an interesting number. Pretty coincidental. No, it's very intentional. When Jesus chooses 12 disciples, he's telling the nation that he's restoring I am centering the new restored Israel around me. I'm your eternal David who's going to rule your kingdom. So bring the 12 tribes back to me. And, of course, you guys know, 12 became 11 when Judas defected at the crucifixion. But what happened right before Pentecost? (laughs) Peter stands up and says, we need a 12th member. And I've always thought, is it really that important, 12? Yeah. If this beginning is supposed to... The church is supposed to represent the restoration of Israel... And fulfill Ezekiel 37... 12 is an important number... The whole house... So they cast lots... They get Matthias... There's now 12... Then the spirit descends... And furthermore... Peter stands up... When he's preaching to the people... In Acts 2.36... And he says... Let all the house of Israel hear and know... What, What did he say? All the house of Israel... Ezekiel 37 says that the whole house of Israel is what this prophecy is for. So the whole restoration of Israel number 4 connecting Ezekiel 37 with the Pentecost is that Israel's regathered. All right? The 12 tribes are being restored symbolically we see in Pentecost, but they're scattered all over. Ezekiel 37:12 says that God's going to bring them into the land. They're gonna, he's going to bring them into a center place. In um, verse 21, he says that he's going to gather them from all around. That's where they are. They're all around this guy. He's going to bring them back to the land. What happens at Pentecost? Well, the spirit descends. And it says in Acts 2 verse 9, Peter makes the weirdest little f- couple verses there. He basically says, and there were witnessing the Pentecost. There's a couple thousand people in the temple area. And he then he says, those who witnessed this were from, and he lists several countries. And you always read that, you're like, okay, that's so lame. Like, I don't care. All these, I don't even know where these countries are. They don't even exist today, do they? And then you just read on. Why did Acts include all those countries? Because if you look at a map and pinpoint all those countries, you see that they all are coming from all around and centering in Jerusalem. Point, God is bringing his exiles back. ...and restoring them at Pentecost. Number five, the restoration of the nations. Now, we saw in verse 28 here that when the temple is built, God's presence is with his people, then the nations will know. Guess what happens in Acts? The Holy Spirit fills the twelve apostles. The church is birthed. They become the temple of God because God is living inside of them through the Holy Spirit temple established the church is an eternal temple it's not see this is the temple not built with hands it's built by god's spirit and it's never going to end we're going to live forever and so this temple is built ezekiel 37 28 is begun and what happens in the book of acts from that moment on they go to judea to samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the earth the nations are included and even the Gentiles, those the nations, play a big role in the book of Acts. And then finally, six, the Davidic king steps onto the scene. We saw that here in verse 24 and 25, that David's going to reign forever. You know what Peter says at Pentecost? Jesus is the Davidic king who's going to reign forever. That's what he tells the people. He says, God resurrected him, ascended him, and he says, Let all the house of Israel know therefore for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord <clears throat> both Lord and Christ. Both Lord and Christ. All of a sudden, a new title is given to Christ. It's Lord. Lord is the title you give to a king. He's up in heaven, Peter's saying, and he's Lord. He's the Davidic king. He's in the role for Ever, I do that for effect. <laughs> okay, so now that that's done, you're probably wondering at this second. Okay. Big deal. Why did you just waste fifteen minutes? I'll never get back. Connecting Ezekiel thirty-seven with Pentecost and Acts two, the birth of the church. Why is you? Why is that even a big deal? Because. The reason I connected that is because I wanted you guys to see that when the church starts and the spirit enters into the apostles that that is the restoration of Israel. Or let me put this another way. The day of Pentecost was when God resumed Israel's mission through the church. Practically, that means you and I, whoever is filled with God's Spirit, we are participants in Israel's mission to bring restoration to the nations. God included us on that day. So we're integrated with Israel. We are part of the restoration process of Israel itself. And we're including the nations. The temple has been erected. It's us. The Spirit of God dwells amongst us. So, if you want to find your place in God's story, give up your story and start living for His, so that you don't end up in the graveyard, but you end up in the resurrecting power of His mission, restoring the nations... To get into that story, you need Ezekiel 37 to happen to you. You need Acts 2 to happen to you. You're a dead heap of bones in your story for all that matters. But you need the breath of God. You need the Holy Spirit to fill you and give you life. And He, the resurrecting power of the Holy Spirit comes in you and brings you out of the graveyard and thrusts you in the church and says you now have the mission of reconciliation and restoration to the nations. That's your goal. That should be your story. You throw up your plans and say God I want to the desires you gave me, I want to use them somehow to help restore people through your story. I mean, God's not calling you just to throw in the towel with every dream you ever had and say, you, That's a stupid plan. You're an idiot. Come join this one. You have to. Yes, you have to. Or it's hell for you. Oh, no, not hell. Okay, I'll do it. I get the feeling that that's Christianity in America. But God actually says... You're you're unique and specially made. You have passions, gifts, and desires. And I just want to fill you with my spirit and say, don't be king over those desires. Let me be king over those desires. Let me guide those desires to where they're going to actually help the nations come to me. That's what he wants to do. So the surrender of your plans isn't bummer. It's resurrection. His story, not yours. However, to close if you do pick up and participate in God's story, if you let the Spirit of God indwell you and resurrect you from the graveyard, there's a couple conditions. Because it's not your story, it's His. He's King. Therefore, it means, one, you are obliged to keep God's Word. It's not an option. Spencer and I talked about this the other day, uh, yesterday actually. When God says, love your enemies... That's not, this is how you should live. That's, this is how people in my story live. And if you don't love your enemies, you're being your own king. So first, you're obliged to obey God's word. Second, you're to trust that his story is good for you. Not just like, oh gosh, who, what's he going to do? He's going to make a monster come out of this closet at this part of the story. It's scary. No. He told Moses, I will be who I am. What I've started with you, I'm going to perfect and finish. I'm not going to change on you forever, restoration. So trust that his story is good. And then third, love his story more than your own story. This has been our theme in Pilgrim's Progress the last couple of weeks. Loving God's story more than our story. Because if you love God's story more than your story, you're going to be able to do reckless, awesome, crazy things like go to a muslim nation where they have a gun to your head like that's how people do that they love god's story more than their own it will make you boldless uh, bold and fearless that's where i was going bold and fearless for christ and that's honestly and that's an exciting story to be part of and that's where life has meaning so we can only do this though if god's spirit indwells us So let us ask that God's spirit controls us. Let us receive that power from God. That's what defines a Christian is when God indwells you. You become the temple. We are the temple. We're building the nations into this temple. That's our mission. So Father, we ask for your spirit's help in this. And I pray that you would fill those who are in the graveyard at this minute. And that you would restore them with your resurrected power of your spirit restore them to life with you lord we want to participate in your story so we pray together that you would spirit of living god fall afresh on us and that you would melt us you'd mold us you would fill us and you would use us in christ's name we pray amen